Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Tadekam Smaramas Tadekam Hajamaha Tadekam Jagat Sakshi Rupam Namamaha Sadekam Nidhanam Niralam Bamisham Bhavam Bodhipotam Sharanyam Vrajamaha Om Shanti 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of this world, do we come for refuge? Om peace, peace, peace. Good morning on this holy day. Of course, every day is a holy day. And this day is especially connected with the birth of Sri Chaitanya, one of the great prophets of uh, God. Uh, who especially preached the name of God, the sanctity of the holy name of God, and chanting the name of God. His spiritual descendants, uh, uh, one branch of his spiritual descendants is, is the group known as the Hare Krishnas. Uh, and you know how enthusiastic they are about chanting God's name. So uh, today is uh, celebrated as his birthday, the full moon uh, day. And in India, it's celebrated also with a throwing of colored powder. Perhaps you've seen pictures or even participated in that. So I wanted to acknowledge the, the holy day, the prayer we chant in the morning here and at our centers in Southern California, which begins, chant the name of the Lord and his glory unceasingly, that the mirror of the heart may be wiped clean. That prayer is composed by Sri Chaitanya. So we just remember uh, him and his uh, glorious contribution to the spiritual life of humanity. Our topic today, however, is something else, as most of you know. It is Vedanta and the near-death experience, a topic which is really fascinating to me and I think to many people. Uh, what is the near-death experience? I think most of us by now probably know. It's, uh, it's becoming widely known and reported and there's a lot of books and all of that. A fascinating phenomenon. People who have died on operating tables, in car accidents, uh, in swimming pools, uh, then are resuscitated, and they report having uh, remarkable experiences, some of them, report having remarkable experiences of being conscious during the time of their death, of being outside of their bodies, even having uh, transcendent transformative spiritual experiences, profound experiences, uh, meeting relatives who have died before. Uh, this is what is commonly known as a near-death experience. Actually, it could, one researcher argues that it should be called a death experience because actually the person has died, 
but has been resuscitated. Anyhow, the name near-death experience seems to be sticking. So I'd like to today examine the near-death experiences and the intersection with the teachings of Vedanta. Uh, first of all, can we accept that near-death experiences, are they true or are they just uh, hallucinations, as some skeptics argue? And uh, secondly, do these uh, descriptions that the people report, ha the experience they report it having, do they tally with the teachings of Vedanta, with the ideas and ide ideals of Vedanta? And uh, you can probably guess that I will argue that they do, and that uh, resoundingly so, and that they offer us a wonderful corroboration of the ancient teachings of Vedanta, the, the teachings and ideals of Vedanta. I'd like to just touch on a little bit of the history of the, the um, uh, coming to know about near-death experiences. Um, it's a recently, it's actually re recent, at least it's in my lifetime, which means to me it's recent. Uh, in 1975, Dr. Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life. In that book, he coined the term near-death experience. Before that, it was practically unknown, except to those people who actually experienced them. But uh, uh, he publicized it. He interviewed uh, hundreds of people and... Uh, after his book came out, it also became a subject of controversy because a lot of people, a lot of scientists and, and medical doctors, poo-pooed it as uh, just uh, dreams, hallucinations, uh, things like that. That's the usual scientific materialistic viewpoint that such experiences are just hallucinations conjured up by an oxygen-starved dying brain. This is, of course, the position that uh, consciousness is merely the byproduct of various biochemical processes going on in the brain. That's the materialist uh, position, which is deeply entrenched in the scientific community, though it's getting uprooted slowly but surely. Uh, now, it was always easy to discount these reports of near-death experiences that people were telling their doctors and uh, that Raymond Moody discovered, because there weren't that many of them. Well, it's probably just a hallucination. Forget about it. Uh, the doctors would say. But now, it's not a question of a few dozen reports. It's not a question of a few hundred reports. It's uh, a matter of thousands of reports, thousands, tens of thousands of reports of near-death experiences, which are being collected also by researchers. So with this kind of numbers, uh, it's impossible to just dismiss them with a wave of a hand. It's something we need to look at. And there are now some doctors and scientists who are looking at it in a scientific and methodical manner. So it's a wonderful area of intersection between science and religion. Science was always the study of what we can perceive with our senses, what we can know here in this world. And religion, well, that's for what you can't know in this world. Uh, but uh, now... What happens after death, which was always the purview of religion, is being taken up by scientists uh, through the study of these so-called near-death experiences. And scientists who deeply study it with an open mind uh, will be forced to at least question seriously the long-held materialist view that consciousness is merely a byproduct of molecules in the brain. 
we can understand how this viewpoint arises, the materialist viewpoint. As Swami Vivekananda puts it, modern science and its sledgehammer blows are pulverizing the porcelain foundations of all dualistic religions everywhere. Pulverizing the foundations of religion. Well, uh, for instance, evolution, which is a established scientific uh, truth, really, um, it shatters the teaching, shatters it to pieces, the teaching that the world and human beings were created by a creative act of a creator in six days. And on the sixth day, man was created, and on the seventh day, God rested. This evolution shatters this myth. There may be some uh, truth in the myth. Some truths are trying to be expressed through that myth. But to take it literally, it doesn't, uh, it, we can't take it literally anymore because of science. Now, biology, specifically neurology, studies the brain and finds that uh, uh, there are different parts of the brain associated with different mental processes, like memory, vision, uh, movement, language, music, decision-making. They can map all these different areas of the brain which are correlated with these different mental processes. And we ourselves can easily uh, verify the connection between uh, the brain and the mind. Drink a cup of coffee, and you get one effect. Drink uh, a glass or two of scotch, you get quite a different effect. Uh, so we, we know that uh, there is some relation between the brain and the mind. There is some correlation. Uh, then again, there are studies of brain injuries, fascinating studies, uh, which leave people functional but with uh, severe handicaps in, in strange ways, like the person who uh, whose ability to uh, form... Uh, new memories is destroyed. So a person has all his or her memories up to a certain period of time, but can't form any new memories. So every time you meet him, he thinks he's meeting you for the first time after 10 years. Maybe he had the accident 10 years ago, and you meet him every day, and every day he'll think, I'm meeting you now for the first time since, since 10 years. Can't form new memories. So it seems that perhaps the brain is enough, enough to explain mind, memory, and personality. So in this way, religion, the idea that we are a soul, is smashed by science. Why, why believe in a soul at all? The brain is enough to explain who we are, to explain consciousness, which is merely the byproduct of chemical and electrical activity in the brain. Why bring in God? Physics, chemistry, and biology is enough to explain everything. Well, these near-death experience reports uh, shatter this myth of materialism. For they report conscious experiences without the support of body and brain. These reports are coming, uh, just a little digression, they're coming uh, through a fairly new branch of me uh, medical science called resuscitation medicine. People who uh, specialize in resuscitating people who have died. That's also a new field. It was in the 1960s only that CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, was invented and started being taught and used. And now there's a lot of progress with drugs and instruments, and it is possible now to resuscitate people who may have died minutes or even hours earlier. 
particularly when the body is chilled. People who have fallen through ice into freezing water and may be dead for several hours can be revived. They can be brought back to life, which is also, uh, incidentally, why uh, nowadays in, in modern hospitals, those who suffer cardiac arrest, the heart attack, where their heart stops, they chill the body immediately, start chilling the body to slow down the degradation of the body while they work on resuscitating it. So um, death was always a one-way street. Hmm? What happens beyond, beyond when the curtain falls? What happens after that? Nobody knows. Nobody ever knew. But uh, it was always a one-way street. Now it seems that that one-way sign has been taken down. In certain cases, it becomes a two-way street, with this, uh, particularly through res resuscitation medicine. And the endless speculation about what happens beyond the veil, when the curtain drops, what happens beyond, that uh, speculation is now being, uh, we're starting to get reports of actually what does happen. One thing when we study near-death experience reports that keeps coming back again and again is this uh, skepticism with which the reports are met. So it, it, comes, it'll, it comes up several times in the talk today also because people tell their experiences to their doctors and again and again they find that the doctors, they don't know what to say they're embarrassed, or they just discount it. Well, it's some kind of hallucination. Forget about it. Or they get labeled as crazy. Oh, she's finally gone off the deep end. She's lost, she's lost her marbles. So after one or two experiences of telling an experience uh, and meet, being met with such incredulity, most people who have them keep quiet about them. Anyhow, we can say that uh, there has been a wall of silence around uh, the near-death experience for decades or centuries, and that wall of silence began to crack in 1975 with the publication of Raymond Moody's book, which became an international bestseller, 13 million copies sold, translated into a dozen languages, and uh, he interviewed uh, hundreds of people who had near-death experiences and found that they contained a number of common factors. Uh, he identified nine of them, although each experience he found was unique to the person. They had a number of elements that were very similar. And of course, now it's, it's becoming a flood, a flood of books and radio programs and television programs and YouTube videos. And it's as if a kind of critical mass has been reached. And now uh, scientists and doctors are beginning to look at it seriously. Uh, there's one Dr. Jeffrey Long, who is... Uh, probably done the most in-depth research uh, through statistical analysis. He's collected thousands of reports through an in-depth and complex questionnaire and uh, is analyzing these uh, using statistical methods of analysis. So this is now moving beyond anecdotal uh, evidence to statistical evidence. Um, by the way, uh, his website is wonderful. The Near-Death Experience Research Foundation, N d-e-r-f dot o-r-g. You can read uh, about uh, people's personal experiences submitted to the website. So what typically happens in a near-death experience? Uh, Jeffrey Long has uh, identified 12 main categories of experience, 12 main uh, categories of common elements found in near-death experiences across cultures, across religions, Old people, very young people, in between, 
a person dies or nearly dies from cardiac arrest or a drug allergy or disease or surgical complications or drowning or car accident or gunshot wound, or, there's so many ways to die. There are, <laughs> we find that uh, these are the elements. I'll read them out first quickly and then we'll uh, take up some of them in detail. First, out-of-body experience, or OBE. They have an out-of-body experience. They see their body from above, typically. They realize, that's my body lying on the bed or on the floor or floating in the pool, and I'm above it, and I'm separate from it, completely separate from the body. Second, heightened senses, uh, increased clarity, intense colors, being able to hear things at a distance. The senses have been um, freed from the constraints of the physical uh, instrument, feeling the emotions of others who are uh, in the vicinity. Third, intense and generally extremely positive emotions or feelings of peace, of joy, of love. Many describe an unconditional love or a peace that passeth all understanding. Four, passing into or through a tunnel. None of these are common to everyone. Some people experience one or two of them. Some people experience many of them. Uh, but a tunnel is also one of the common, though not universal, experiences. Five, encountering a mystical or brilliant light often described as being of the very nature of unconditional and infinite love. Six, encountering other beings, either mystical beings, perhaps described sometimes as guides, uh, or deceased relatives or friends, sometimes even meeting relatives whom uh, they had not met before, but whom they had heard about, or whom they found out about after uh, reviving, or relatives whom they had, did not know had died. Say, uh, uh, someone ha had a terrible accident and is hovering between life and death, and their grandmother dies. And the family doesn't want to tell the person because it thinks it might be upsetting. And when they cross over and have a near-death experience, they meet their grandmother, and they come back, and, they, and finally they're told, well, grandmother died. Yeah, I know. I met her on the other side. Seven, a sense of altered time or space. Often uh, time is described as stopping. Time stops. Eight, a life review. Experiencing the entire life, though it, it might seem to take uh, many hours or days, and yet at the same time it seems to unfold in an instant, this idea of time stopping. And the whole life getting uh, reviewed uh, experiencing every action, its motivations, its effects on others. How was it uh, a noble act, or was it perhaps a selfish act, or an, an ignoble act? Nine, encountering unworldly or heavenly realms, going to some beautiful place which is, uh, which is like earth a little bit, but different, more beautiful. The flowers are exquisite, and the, the, uh, the weather is perfect, and some kind of heavenly realms. Ten, Encountering or learning special knowledge, like the nature of God, the purpose of my life, what my past lives were, my past incarnations, what remaining work I have to do on, on earth. Eleven, encountering a boundary or a barrier, a point of no return. If they crossed it, they would be unable to return. People describe this 
that uh, some kind of barrier, knowing which if they cross it, then they won't return to the body. They'll be going on in the spiritual realms. And 12, uh, this is the one that's, that's common to all of them, a return to the body. They return to their body, uh, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, but then when they're resuscitated, there they are back in their bodies. And sometimes they voluntarily return to the body, and uh, often also it is an involuntary return. They're forced back into the body. They don't want to go back in the body. So let's start with now, let's take up a few of these at least. We won't have time to go into depth in all of them. Let's start with the first one, the out-of-body experience. Vedanta and other traditions, but especially Vedanta emphasizes that we are not our bodies. Though we think we are, we are taught and we remind ourselves that we are not our bodies. And yet, few of us know it by experience. Our experience most of the time is that I am this body. And the way we speak also reflects this idea. Say uh, we catch a cold. We say, I'm sick. I am sick. No. Vedanta says, you are not sick, the body is sick, the body has, has a virus playing in it. You are not sick, you are infinite consciousness. You are not the body. But we talk like that. We say, I'm feeling cold, I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm angry. We identify ourselves with all these uh, sensations of the body and the mind. Well, in the out-of-body experience, a person realizes directly I am not the body. Let me read an experience. A young boy was electrocuted in his garage. Quote, As I was being electrocuted, I left my body and floated above the scene. I was surrounded by a warm, diffuse light, but could see everything clearly. I could see my body shaking and convulsing with the electrical current. My eyes were open, my mouth was open, but I couldn't speak. I seemed to know that I was going to die unless something changed. I don't remember being scared or frightened at all, very matter-of-factly. While floating, I went over to where my dad was working at the other end of the garage. He had his back to my body and wasn't aware of what was going on. I went over to him, and then he looked up from his work on the floor, turned to see my body being electrocuted. He picked up a hammer and threw it across the room and knocked the extension cord drop light out of my hand. It's a good thing that uh, the father did it that way. If he had gone over and tried to push it with his hand, he could have also become electrocuted. So he knew enough about electricity to throw something and the cord was knocked out of his hand. Remarkable. This boy saw himself completely separate from his body, and also saw what happened, which could be verified afterwards. This is what gives these experiences a credence, credibility. They, uh, he sees his father throw the hammer, afterwards talks with dad, uh, and can verify that, yes, dad did throw the hammer. It happened the way I saw it when I was out of my body. Some of the most remarkable out-of-body experiences happen in emergency rooms and operating theaters, where when patients die, when they have cardiac arrest. Cardiac arrest means the heart stops pumping. No blood pumps through the body. It's called flatlining. Why? Because the electrocardiogram, you've probably seen it on TV or in hospital rooms, the little jiggly line that shows the electrical impulses of the heart, 
When the heart stops beating, that line goes flat. So they call it flatlining. There's no blood being pumped through the body. Now, what I didn't know is that uh, within 20 seconds, 10 to 20 seconds of the blood stopping, uh, not flowing through the body, all the other organs also cease to function. All the organs of the body need a constant supply of oxygen and uh, glucose to keep working. So uh, when the heart stops pumping within 10 to 20 seconds, the brain also flatlines. It's called an EEG, electroencephalogram, a uh, graph or machine which measures the electrical activity in the brain. Within 10 to 20 seconds of the heart stopping, flatlining, the brain also flatlines. So uh, yet at this time, when the brain is known to be non-functioning, not functioning at all, it's at this time that a few patients report having these highly conscious experiences. In fact, they report that their conscious experience is more aware, more intensely aware and awake than normal waking consciousness. How amazing. They float above their bodies, see the doctors working frantically in a panic to start restart the heart, and yet they feel utterly disconnected, utterly at peace. They can hear what's going on in the room, they see it from above, and this, that what, what they experience can be corroborated. That's what really lends credence, that really puts to rest the objection that these are mere hallucinations. There was one man who uh, saw the uh, uh, team working on him. He had had a cardiac arrest, and the nurse was trying to put in a breathing tube, and his dentures were getting in the way. So she removed his dentures and put them in the drawer on the cart and got the breathing tube in. And afterwards, uh, he was resuscitated, and, well, where were his dentures? Nobody knew. And so he told them, no, you put them in the drawer on the cart. And then they went and found, yes, there they were in the drawer of the cart. So uh, this kind of corroboration is, is wonderful. It gives us great confidence in the truth of these reports. So the sheer number of these reports now coming to light is furnishing not only evidence, not mere evidence, but I feel it's really proof, proof that consciousness does not depend on brain function. When the brain is not functioning at all, People are having conscious experiences that they can remember and report later and that are corroborated by others who are awake and alive at the time. So these out-of-body experiences uh, furnish a reassuring confirmation of the Vedanta teachings, that we are not our body. There's a fascinating uh, interaction between Sri Ramakrishna and Keshav Chandra Sen, one of his uh, close associates uh, in Calcutta who was a great spiritual leader himself of the Brahmo Samaj. And uh, he was sick, he was dying, he was uh, terminally ill, and Sri Ramakrishna went to see him. And he, w he went into ecstasy while he was uh, sitting with him, and he was saying to himself in a, in a kind of uh, divine fervor, the body and the soul. The body was born and it will die, but for the soul there is no death. It is like the beetle nut. When the nut is ripe, it does not stick to the shell. But when it is green, it is difficult to separate it from the shell. After realizing God, one does not identify oneself anymore with the body. Then one knows that the body and soul are two different things.
So after such an out-of-body experience, the experiencer also knows that the body and the soul, the body and the Atman, the Jeevatman, the individual self, are separate. He gives this example of a nut. When it's green, the shell of the nut and the kernel of the nut are fused together. It's very difficult to separate them. And that represents the case for most of us. Who we really are, the soul, the self, and the body, seem to be inextricably connected and intertwined. But in the case of a ripe nut, you can shake the nut and the kernel rattles around inside. They're entirely separate. So like that, one who has attained spiritual illumination knows that he or she is not the body. That is entirely separate. And someone who has had such a near-death experience, such an out-of-body experience, also knows it. Also knows it. So these uh, out-of-body experiences raise a lot of interesting questions. On the one hand, they're helping establish without a doubt that consciousness does not depend on the body, on, on physical processes, that it, we are able to think and have conscious experiences without our bodies. Uh, and yet uh, it also raises the question, well, what is the nature of that connection with who we are and the body? Because at the same time, we know that the body does affect the mind. When we drink a cup of coffee, we do feel perked up. When we drink a, a glass of scotch, we do f start to feel tipsy. And if we drink a bottle of scotch, we fall down unconscious. So uh, clearly the mind can function without the brain. But when we are in the body, it seems that the mind is circumscribed by the physical limits of the brain. So it's an exciting area of study. Near-death experiences, as it turns out, are extremely common much more common than those of us who have not had them would believe. In fact, in every group that I've spoken with, there are one or two people. So I'm entirely certain that among the people present here, there are at least one or two people who have had a near-death experience. And uh, I've heard at least a dozen or two dozen reports directly from people who have had these experiences. And one thing that strikes me and what strikes all those who hear about them is the conviction of the experiencer that the experience was real. And also the life-changing nature of the experience. Life-changing nature. There are three primary reasons why people mostly don't talk about them. First of all, it's very difficult to talk about them because the experiences go beyond what language can describe. It's, they're ineffable. How to put into words an experience of the divine. Uh, secondly, uh, they're intensely private. They're life-transforming. They're sacred. So one doesn't feel like sharing them. Most people don't want to share them with any people other than their nearest and dearest ones, the people who they can really trust. And third, such reports are often met with incredulity, as I mentioned several times. So for these reasons, uh, people don't talk about them much. Now, what we have talked about thus far is just uh, really a tip of the iceberg of near-death experiences. Once out of the body, people having such experiences, many people experience intensely heightened awareness, much more than normal waking awareness. They have what they describe as 360-degree vision, uh, simultaneous aware awareness of different places at the same time, uh, and further experiences that can only be described as transcendent mystical experiences. Let me read another example. Uh, from Anita Murjani, who wrote a well-known book called Dying to be Me. She was dying in, of cancer, and finally she died in the hospital room. 
As my emotions were being drawn away from my surroundings, I started to notice how I was continuing to expand, to fill every space, until there was no separation between me and everything else. I encompassed, no, became, everything and everyone. I was fully aware of every word of the conversation that was taking place between my family and the doctors, although it was physically some distance away outside my room. I knew the frightened expression on my husband's face and could feel his fear. It was as though in that instant I became him. Simultaneously, although I hadn't known of it previously, I became aware that my brother, Anup, was thousands of miles away on an airplane, anxiously coming to see me. Here again, uh, these, this was corroborated later. The conversations were corroborated, and her brother Anup was indeed on an airplane. She continued, There I was, without my body, or any of my physical traits, yet my pure essence continued to exist, and it was not a reduced element of my whole self. In fact, it felt far greater and more intense and expansive than my physical being. Magnificent, in fact. I felt eternal, as if I'd always existed and always would, without beginning or end. I was filled with the knowledge that I was simply magnificent. Once uh, our consciousness is freed from the body, it seems to be freed also from the limits of the physical senses, and uh, perception is more clear and intense. And in this case, Anita, Anita Murjani, she gets a glimpse of her eternal nature, always existed, always will exist, and she was filled with the knowledge of her own magnificence. It ties in wonderfully with uh, the teachings of Vedanta. It's really in perfect accord with uh, Vedantic teachings. Uh, who we are is not born and cannot die. We are glorious. We are glorious. Swami Vivekananda says, man stands on the glory of his own soul, the infinite, the eternal, the deathless. He says, as this maya veil, as this veil which which hides our perception of the truth, becomes thinner and thinner. The inborn natural glory of the soul comes out and becomes more manifest. So uh, Anita had a profound insight into the kind of truth that Vedanta affirms. Now thus far we have been discussing experiences of consciousness freed from the confines of the body, but still tied to this realm of time and space. Anita was aware of her brother coming. Everything was happening still in this kind of realm. Many experiences, as I mentioned, they, they, they describe visiting other, the other realms like uh, heavens, beautiful landscapes and gardens. Of course, Vedanta also does not deny these realms. There are said to be uh, seven different lokas, different, different uh, levels of, of heavens, as it were and also some levels of hells also. But they're temporary. Vedanta wants to find the truth, what is eternal. In the Vedantic teaching, we may go to a heaven, but again, we come back when the, the uh, merits of which brought us to that heaven are exhausted. 
And uh, in fact, many of the near-death experiences also uh, relate uh, experiencing and knowing their previous incarnations, their previous lives. So it's not a fundamental tenet of Vedanta exactly, but it's a, a widely accepted theory in Hinduism and Vedanta that we incarnate again and again. It's not like it's a doctrine of the faith that you, one has to accept, but it's a widely accepted uh, theory or fact, almost a fact. And that also is corroborated by many of the near-death experiencers. So some of the most inspiring of the reports describe these intensely spiritual and mystical experiences. And uh, they read like scripture. I've gone to the website, I've read hundreds of them. They ju just let me just read one more, one more, one more. Uh, they're so exciting because on the one hand, they're a corroboration of the teachings of Vedanta. And in some ways, they bring new life and light into the, the truths of Vedanta. And Remarkably, what's especially exciting, these people who are having these experiences are regular people like you and me. They're not saints, they're not yogis, they're not uh, um, illumined souls, and yet they're having these profound, indescribable experiences of divinity, which completely transform their lives. Several things happen to people who have these experiences afterwards. First, they completely lose their fear of death. Most everybody in this world is afraid to die. What happens at death? We don't know. We're afraid. People, that's the root fear of our lives, is the fear of death. Those who have had a near-death experience, they have completely lost that fear because they have died and they have found that it was easy and that they still exist afterwards. Second, they become more compassionate, more loving, more forgiving. They become more spiritually inclined. And yet, at the same time, they most often become less religious. If they were religious, uh, then they become less religious. Because the experiences often do not tally with the dualistic conceptions of the divine. Uh, that God is a judge and when, when we meet him, he's going to judge us and either send us to the good place or the bad place. This uh, near-death experiences, uh, nobody experiences that. It's, a, it's revealed as a, as a myth, which Vedanta also would say. So they go beyond the limited conceptions of religion in these experiences. They realize that the divine is real and beyond all words and ideas even. And that conventional religious people like us have really a very limited conception of the divine since we're not established yet in God consciousness. Another interesting thing, though they have these profound experiences of, we can say, spiritual illumination, they don't become saints. When they come back to their bodies, they've had these experiences, they've lost their fear of death, but they also still have all the emotional baggage, the psychological baggage. And it can take years for them to integrate their experience uh, into their lives and into their changed lives. So they, they have those limitations which they had before. They still have many of them. They have to work through them. So let me read another experience. Michelle, a woman named Michelle, she was shot in the neck by her boyfriend. So here she goes. I could see myself from above as if I was perched on a corner of the ceiling in the room, looking down at myself. I saw all kinds of police and firefighters looking over my body and stepping around me. I had no pain. 
I had no blame towards anyone, no ill feelings. I felt so blissful and whole, full of the most love I had ever experienced. I thought to myself, if this is dying, then it is not as bad as everyone thinks it is. Then I saw a light from above me. It was pulling me away from the room. I figured it was okay to just let this happen, to go with the flow and accept whatever was to be. The light was getting brighter, engulfing my body. Uh, body? I had no body. It stayed back down in that damp room. I realized that I was dead physically, but mentally I was still alive. My soul was now my body, in quotes. I looked up into the light. I could see someone beckoning me to come. He was there at the end of this lit tunnel. Then I heard a voice. It was a man's voice. He asked me if I was ready. I felt so good. It was so easy. How amazing. She's been shot in the neck, and yet she feels no blame towards anyone. Her boyfriend has shot her in the neck. She feels no blame, no ill feelings, and she's ready to go, and it's so easy. So easy. We think it's hard to die. It's so easy. Sri Ramakrishna said to Holy Mother, after he had left the body, have I gone to another place? Here I am. I have just passed from one room to another. We are fortunate that some of the people who have these experiences do have a, a gift with language and poetically transmit at least a glimpse of their experiences. Some report the dissolution of the ego, after which they describe what can only be called an experience of spiritual realization or illumination. I'll read another from Annie, a woman who died in a car accident. After seeing her body from above, she begins to rise accompanied by a guide. And then I'll start quoting from here. As the extraordinary event unfolded, my escort and I ascended into the sky. Unconditional love became more concentrated. The awareness filled my inner consciousness with joy, comfort, and ecstasy. A blinding, magnetic, brilliant light focused on my forehead, drawing me closer and closer to the light that was beginning to encompass my whole being. Unconditional love intensely flowed everywhere without effort honoring and glorifying every cell with a total awareness of physically, emotionally, and mentally being within love at last. Every cell is gently caressed in the all-abundant love, honoring and glorifying every bit of who I am. Love that flowed without any conditions or effort, omnipresent and very real. The love abundantly flowed without any restrictions, conditions, or commitments. As we ascended, the clutches of the dramas that ego entertained disappeared. Ego's continual habit of self-sabotage was non-existent at last. The veil which separated me from experiencing the reality of unconditional love was effortlessly dissolved. So here also uh, 
this is in perfect accord with the teachings of Vedanta. It is our ego, our, this false sense of self that prevents us from realizing who we really are. We think we are this false self with all its dramas and its attachments and its aversions, this body and mind and personality. No, we are, says Vedanta, we are infinite consciousness. We are infinite love. When the ego dies, we realize that. Says Swami Vivekananda, the adamantine wall that shuts us in is egoism. Until we give up the world manufactured by the ego, never can we enter the kingdom of heaven. None ever did, none ever will. This rascal ego must be obliterated. This rascal ego must be obliterated. Here in these experiences, these people describe the ego melting away and then they finding who they really are. Another uh, interesting uh, thing about the near-death experiences, many people report uh, experiencing God, but don't name the light they experience as a personal God. And there are some reports which uh, affirm the idea of the one divine reality being called different names by different seekers. For instance, there's a woman uh, who was raised in the Southern Baptist tradition. I shouldn't name the tradition. Was raised in a conservative tradition. uh, And uh, uh, she says, my early concept of God was molded by the pervasive extremist religious community of the Bible Belt, exemplified by uh, blank, which was practiced by my parents. The wrathful, vengeful God as taught by my religion instilled in me a deep fear of God, death, and the afterlife. How tragic that religion, which is supposed to take us to infinite freedom, is instead making someone afraid of God, afraid of that infinite source of all love. Her near-death experience completely transformed her, removed every trace of that fear. And uh, she also mentions this. uh, She she describes it. uh, With the eyes of my soul body, I looked to see what held me in such love and I beheld a radiant spirit being, so magnificent and full of love that I knew I would never again feel the sense of loss. I have no way of explaining how, but I knew the spirit was Christ. It was not a belief, perception, or understanding, but my recognition of Christ came from my new perspective of spirit. I knew no other name to call what I felt as I looked at him. But then she goes on to say, others might have called him Buddha or Yahweh or great spirit in the sky, but the naming did not matter. Only the recognition of absolute love and truth was important. I'll skip a little bit through her description. My understanding of love was forever changed. The majesty and glory of that vision was an ineffable moment that defined forevermore the direction of my new truth. I was home, and I wanted nothing more than to remain in the light of God. Christ had delivered me into the light, and I stood in the presence of God. I was filled with complete knowing. The light was love, and love was God. Waves of consummate love which emanated from the light obliterated every burden I carried and every thought that kept me from knowing God. There was no limit to the outpouring as I came to the rapturous awareness of the infinite nature of God's love. There was no place that God did not exist, 
and I was within God. I am an inseparable part of the light. The truth of who I am, indeed of who we all are, is perfect love. All of God's creation is one creation, and I am one with creation. God and I are one. Finally, it all made sense. God could only love me because God is only love, nothing other than love. The only reality is God. There cannot be another, and God is love. What a vision, what a realization, what a realization. She not only experienced the light, uh, the divine, as separate from her, but she merged with it. She had a profound experience of her own divinity. Well, we could go on reading these reports for the whole afternoon, but we, we go beyond time when we uh, leave the body and enter into uh, realization of who we really are. We find ourselves today still uh, bounded by time, and it's become 12 o'clock, so I'll have to wrap up this talk now, though I feel like reading a little bit more. Let me just touch briefly on this. Uh, first of all, this passage which we just read from Linda, we see how, how it accords perfectly with the teachings of Vedanta. That, uh, as Swami Vivekananda puts it, the eternal, the infinite, the omnipresent, the omniscient is a principle, not a person. You and I and everyone are but embodiments of that principle and the more of this infinite principle is embodied in a person, the greater is he. And all in the end will be the perfect embodiment of that. And thus all will be one, as they are now essentially. This is all there is of religion. And the practice is through this feeling of oneness that is love. This feeling of oneness that is love, that is the practice. Somehow this, this quote of Vivekananda seemed to me to resonate with uh, Linda's description, which we just read. Let me uh, just touch briefly on the experience of life review. Uh, this part of the near-death experience reports really uh, adds to our understanding of karma, of what the doctrine of karma, of uh, how we reap the effects of our own actions. Cammy, a woman named Cammy, who was crushed under a car. She, I think she was thrown out of the car and it rolled over on top of her. Here I could see the whole picture, how every thought and motivation of the previous life passage snaked tendrils of manifestation into the world, and how each tendril rolled out to affect other people and all of life. I felt everything, every little kindness, every subtle dig, each moment of carelessness, the wasted potentials, the comfort passed on to others, the secret joys, impatience, self-pity, a genuine smile to a lonely person at the right moment, ripples from a tossed pebble. I experienced how everyone experienced my actions and intentions, and how everyone they affected felt, and so on down the chain of action and reaction flowing even into nature itself. More importantly, I could see how things could have been if enacted with pure love. 
Each action was balanced by its effect on the life force in total. The chain ran from my link back up, retracing and revealing why I made the choices I did, why my full intentions were not in alignment with my professed goals, saw the causes and effects throughout multiple lifetimes. It was as if the web of this incarnation was a soft silk, and we were holding it up to examine thread by thread, seeing how it draped in all directions from each point we lifted, seeing where the tensions ran through other layers and other lifetimes. So this is a fascinating uh, description of how our actions do affect others. And many describe this experience of experiencing what I did from the standpoint of who I was talking with or what I did to that person. When we have an argument with our neighbor, it could be that when we leave the body, we're going to experience what our neighbor was feeling at that time. Yes, that's what they're describing. We, we can take this as, a, as a enriching our understanding of karma and uh, using this to uh, act consciously and carefully in this world. So finally, uh, those who have a near-death experience and come back to report it have to return to their bodies, and uh, otherwise they wouldn't be able to tell us about it. And many describe this extreme reluctance to, to enter the body. They don't want to, but they're told, no, you're, it's, your, it's not your time yet. Others seem to be given a choice. And those who come back most often come back because they feel they're pulled by certain people who they feel still need them. Relatives are very often children who still need me. And they can see their trajectory. If I didn't come back, I can see how my children's life would be. And if I did come back, how their life would be. And they realize, no, I have to come back for my children. They describe this experience of being in the light as, as finally arriving home. And they feel very reluctant to leave it. It can be very painful. So uh, in conclusion, uh, the study of near-death experiences is a, is a wonderful study. We find so many parallels with the teachings of Vedanta. It's a real corroboration and confirmation of the teachings of Vedanta. And Vedanta also has the breadth, the broadness, to embrace all these experiences, although each one is unique, and is, each one is described in unique language, pe uh, peculiar to the person who had the experience, and colored by their own psychological, emotional, and religious background, and all of that. Still, we can see how each one is unfolding within the infinite consciousness that is the absolute reality, which Vedanta calls Brahman. It's so encouraging because these people are not great saints or yogis or meditators, but ordinary people like you and me, whose vision has been cleared, who have had direct experience of the divine and been transformed by it. It's a great reminder of who we truly are, of our true nature, our birthright, infinite love and bliss. However, we must remember that Vedanta says... And this is important. Vedanta says, we don't have to die to experience this. Hmm? These people have all died to experience We don't have to die to experience this. Vedanta doesn't teach a post-mortem emancipation, a post-mortem spiritual joy. Here and now in this life itself is the goal of Vedanta. We can realize who we are. Today we have discussed the spiritual experiences of those who have died. 
uh, and come back to tell us. But there are also equally so many experiences of people who have had mystical experiences and become spiritually illumined in the uh, stories of the saints, the, the um, descriptions of the lives of the saints and the seekers, the genuine seekers of God who have transformative spiritual experiences without dying. So it's not that we need to commit suicide. In fact, uh, Vedanta does not encourage suicide at all. Remember, we have a life review and the suicide, how much pain it inflicts on others. So suicide is not uh, encouraged in Vedanta or by those who study near-death experiences. Though, at the same time, some of those who attempt suicide and come back, they do relate that uh, they also entered the light. They also had a profoundly transforming experience. So it's not that those who commit suicide will definitely go to some hell, which is sometimes taught. Near-death experiences uh, put that uh, down as a fiction. And yet Vedanta means we realize here and now that we are divine, we are infinite love. The only thing that has to die is the ego. Thank you. Om Iyam Brahma Varunendra Rudra Marutaha Stunvanti Divyayastavai Vedaya Sangapadakramopanishadai Gayanti Yam Samagaha Dhyana vastita tadgati namanasa Pashyanti yam yogino Yasyantam navidu sura suragana Devayetasmai namaha Om shanti 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 our salutations to him who is the truth of life and existence and whom the sages call by various names. Our salutations to him whose glory is sung in the sacred hymns of the various scriptures of the world, but whose limitless and infinite grandeur no mortal mind can comprehend. Our salutations to him on whom the devotees meditate in the shrine of their hearts, and realize his ineffable presence in their deepest contemplations. May he illumine our understanding and prompt our minds to the path of truth and righteousness. May he reveal himself unto our souls and dispel the gloom of delusion, fear, doubt, and darkness. Om, peace, 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 peace be unto us and to all humankind. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.